so this is a fun one, guys. This is going to be a barrel of laughs. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we're looking at Ecclesiastes and we're looking at the introduction to it. Uh, and it's talking about when everything's meaningless. And I've called that the fruitless journey of materialism. So let's read that uh, introduction. Um, Sasha, could you read the introduction? (coughs) These are the words of the teacher, King David's son, who ruled in Jerusalem. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. What do people get from all their hard work under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth never changes. The sun rises and the sun sets, then hurries around to rise again. The wind blows south and then turns north. Around and around it goes, blowing in circles. Rivers run into the sea, but the sea is never full. And the water returns again to the rivers and flows out again to the sea. Everything is wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we are never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are not content. History merely repeats itself. It has all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. Sometimes people say, here is something new, but actually it is old. Nothing is ever truly new. We don't remember what happened in the past, and in future generations, no one will remember what we are doing now. Sasha? Oh, I appreciated the weariness in your voice as you were <laughs> So over the last couple of decades, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's been a trend that we Christians don't talk about much. It's something, it's increasing visibility of something called deconversion. Yeah. People leaving the faith. If you spend much time online, you may have read of Marty Sampson. Uh, he's a worship leader at Hillsong in Sydney, and it's at couple of the songs that we sing he wrote uh, and two years ago he posted on Instagram this he said oh, he wrote time for some real talk I'm genuinely losing my faith and it doesn't bother me this is a soapbox moment so here I go how many preachers fall many no one talks about it how many miracles happen not many No one talks about it. Why is the Bible full of contradictions? No one talks about it. How can God be loved yet send four billion people to a place all because they don't believe? No one talks about it. Christians can be the most judgmental people on the planet. They can also be some of the most beautiful and loving people. But it's not for me. I'm not in anymore. I want genuine truth, not just the I believe it kind of truth. Science keeps piercing the truth of every religion. Lots of things people help, lots of things help people change their lives, not just one version of God. I've got so much more to say, but for me, I'm keeping it real. Unfollow if you want. I've never been about living my life for others. All I know is what's true to me right now. And Christianity just seemed to me like another religion at this point. I could go on, but I won't. 
Love and forgive, absolutely. Be kind, absolutely. Be generous and do good to others, absolutely. Some things are good no matter what you believe. Let the rain fall, the sun will come up tomorrow. <coughs> Marty actually speaks for many when he writes these words. And at this point, I just want to emphasise that doubt, which is what Marty's expressing here, is not a sin. Our reaction as Christians to our own or another's doubt should not be fear-based anger, but love and concern. Mm. If you're wrestling with problems like those Marty wrestled with and the problems we'll be talking about over the next few weeks, then, well, you're a thinking, feeling human being. That's all. There's nothing wrong with wrestling with these issues. However, these problems do become overwhelming when we take a particular approach to them, as we'll see. And by the way, I haven't uh, found anything online from Marty since this broke in 2019. I tried to find what has happened to him and he's just disappeared from the internet. Perhaps he's keeping a low profile because of the hostile and rather unhelpful reaction that these comments yeah. provoked. Now, this is, this is not a new phenomenon. People have been deconverting for millennia. They just didn't have Instagram to tell people about it. <laughs> but this is, it's always been such a significant issue that the Bible addresses it head on by including an entire book written from the perspective of the most famous deconverter of all time. Who am I talking about? Yeah, it's pretty obvious. <laughs> These are the words of the teacher. Sorry. Okay. Okay. These are the words of the teacher, King David's son, who ruled in Jerusalem. While scholars debate this issue of who actually wrote Ecclesiastes, there's there's no reason not to take the words of Ecclesiastes as as coming directly from Solomon, as the first verse would lead us to believe. Both the form of Hebrew used and the historical details are compatible with what we know of Solomon. So, I'm going to assume that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes. You can go and read pages and pages of discussion if you want, but that's my working assumption. I accept for a little bit, except for a little bit. As you can see, this verse refers to Solomon in the third person as a different person from the writer. And this perspective continues up to verse 11 of chapter 1, which is, coincidentally, the passages that I'm, the verses that I'm speaking of. And then, at the very end of Ecclesiastes, it starts again, this third person perspective. And perhaps not so coincidentally, the worldview expressed changes dramatically at the same point that the writing style does. So the best explanation that people have for this, and most scholars agree that this is the case today, uh, is that an editor took Solomon's words and wrapped them in an introduction 
and a conclusion as a lesson for us. So they didn't change Solomon's words, which is why, you know, you come to Ecclesiastes and you go, whoa! So we actually don't know who the editor was. We have no idea. But he was probably, uh, he probably did this before the exile to Babylon. So, so Solomon's the teacher, but what's he teaching about? What's his primary claim? Everything's meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. So this is the second sentence in the book, and it summarizes Solomon's conclusion. Everything's meaningless. Solomon, the wisest mind in history, delves into all the wisdom of mankind and his conclusion is, it's meaningless. But why? Why does he come to this conclusion? What was the question that this is the answer to? Verse 3 tells us, it's a very structured introduction in case you haven't guessed what do people get for all their hard work under the sun? That's the NLT translation. What profit is there for in all our toil under the sun? So, I just want to explain some of the words here. First, uh, Solomon isn't just asking what people get from their work. He's looking for something more than that. The Hebrew word he uses, yutron, refers to profit. Something left over after you've covered your expenses. Something you can save up. Solomon is asking, does work yield more than just bare survival? Second, Solomon recognizes that life in this world involves more than work. So the Hebrew word he uses... Amal is a negative word. So they've said hard work here, but perhaps a better translation is toil or hard labor. It's, it's you know, Solomon's talking about the, the frustrations of work. I'm sure you all are familiar with that. Going to work and instead of having a nice, fruitful, productive day, you just spend the whole day bashing your head against a computer or a, an obnoxious client or a... Or a, a, a I don't know, a medical chart or a few students or something like that. Maybe a, a cowboy. Um, or a, um, what do they call it? No, 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 the, the, you know, the, the, the board, the electric board. The smart board. No, 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 the electric board. What, what Tim Fuse does. Fuse box. Fuse box, yeah. No. But not a <laughs> what are they called? The main circuit boards. Main circuit board. Okay. Um, but Solomon's Solomon's has an interesting restriction here, right? He wants to know what we profit from our toil under the sun. He's only interested in profits under the sun. The phrase "under the sun" is used twenty-nine times in Ecclesiastes, and nowhere else in the Bible. However, archaeology has found this same phrase in other ancient writings, mostly uh, on tombs. And in these, as well as throughout Ecclesiastes, 
it refers to what we would call the material world, excluding the supernatural. So Solomon focuses exclusively on the material world and he relentlessly turns his insight on what happens throughout the material world. That's his, that's his task, that's his process. And the next section here summarises. <clears throat> generations come and generations go, but the earth never changes. Sun rises and sun sets and hurries around to rise again. The wind blows south and then turns north and round and round it goes, blowing in circles. Rivers run into the sea, but the sea's never full. Then the water returns again to the rivers and flows out again to the sea. This passage is, is, is actually beautiful poetry. In the Hebrew, uh, there's lots of clever sounds that, that evoke the feeling of repetitiveness and hopelessness. The, the verse about the wind sounds like the wind howling. And it all brings us this feeling of the terrible burden of the endless cycle of material existence. But it's not just human nature that's trapped in a meaningless, endless, wearisome cycle. Humanity too is trapped in this same cycle. Everything is wearisome beyond description. So we can't say how painful and tedious everything is. No matter how much we see, we're never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we're not content. History nearly repeats itself. It's all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. Sometimes people say, here's something new, but actually it's old. <laughs> Nothing is ever truly new. We don't remember what's happened in the past, and in future generations, no one will remember what we're doing now. So no words or sights or sounds can ever, ever satisfy us. History just repeats itself and nothing breaks out of this toilsome wheel of existence. History is meaningless and ignored. Now, Solomon's not alone in this uh, observation. In Hinduism, our lives are bound to the wheel of samsara, existence, the endless wheel of existence. And we are reincarnated again and again. And Buddhism claims that this endless cycle is, is, is actually an illusion that's trapped us. So it, it has the same perspective on this endless cycle of existence, except it's even worse than that. Existence is just an illusion. It's not even real. The whole thrust of these two faiths is to escape this endless cycle, this, this wheel of samsara. So this sounds pretty depressing, right? You depressed? It's like the Matrix. <laughs> the Matrix. Yeah. It, is, it is a lot. Well, Buddhism yeah, is a lot like the Matrix. Matrix. You need to find the red Except for the Matrix, you're just the battery. So is this really the Bible's view? After all, I'm, we're reading the Bible. I think you already know the answer to that. And if you skip to the end of Ecclesiastes itself, you'll find the editor drawing a helpful conclusion. He says, that's the whole story. Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God 
and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. So this conclusion brings in something that Solomon's refused to countenance, a heavenly perspective. You see, God is at work in history. So it is worth remembering the past. We just read last week, the end of Ruth. These are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, and then Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz, through Ruth, fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David, King David. The book of Ruth ends with this triumphant genealogy demonstrating how Ruth's chesed led directly to Israel's greatest king. It's ironic, then, that David's son, Ruth's great-great-grandson, denies the significance of his own ancestry. Because Solomon is refusing to look beyond the sun, beyond this material world, he's forgotten that God can do a new thing. God can do a new thing. In fact, Isaiah prophesied, speaking God's words in his prophecy, for I am about to do something new. See, I've already begun. Do you not see it? I will make a pathway through the wilderness. I will create rivers in the dry wasteland. It's not just an endless cycle. God gives shape to history. He works in people's lives towards a great work of redemption. Solomon's perspective may seem neutral, but by denying even the possibility of something beyond the sun, Solomon has denied himself the intellectual, moral and emotional resources to deal with the unfairness of a fallen world. In the coming sermons, we'll hear about the depth and breadth of Solomon's search under the sun. He searched all the paths of this worldly life. And he found that none of them provided meaning. And he wasn't wrong. He's not wrong about this. He hasn't missed something. In fact, in fact, the preacher of Hebrews agrees with Solomon when he explained that many of the old saints also didn't find their faith fulfilled under the sun. Remember in Hebrews? All these people died still believing what God had promised them, the, author of, the preacher of Hebrews says. This is at the end of the roll call of faith. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance. Because they were looking beyond the sun, they saw this promise and they welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. So the difference between Solomon and these saints is that they recognised that their home was not under the sun. They accepted that they were citizens of heaven. There's no inheritance tax on citizens. Yes. (laughs) It's been said that Christians can become so heavenly minded that they become of no earthly use. Who's heard that saying? Yeah? I've heard that. But I think this warning is almost always unhelpful. It's, it's, It's sort of like warning a politician to keep his integrity from interfering with his political manoeuvring. 
<laughs> it's a rare politician who needs such a warning. In the same way, Christians rarely need to be worried about being too heavenly minded. As Paul wrote to the Philippians, For I've told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows that they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They're headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things, and they think only about this life here on earth. But we are citizens of heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our saviour. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. So my advice is don't worry about being too heavenly minded. Instead, keep in mind God's perspective from beyond the end of time, which reveals the final purpose of all this groaning and suffering. Paul explained this so beautifully in his letter to the Romans. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is eagerly waiting for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. And we believe is also groan even though we have the Holy Spirit within us, as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. Being heavenly minded means working for God's kingdom here on earth. That's why the second greatest commandment is to love our neighbour. It's the second. Here are some things we can do to counter the under the sun thinking. Now I've taken these ideas from an American project called The Great Opportunity which is looking at, at how many young people in America are falling away from the faith and seeing that as an opportunity to bring them back to the faith. So, we can start new churches. That sounds like a good idea. Let's start. Um, New churches are useful because they provide more new opportunities for people to encounter Christ. So there is a reason to it. It's not just like, you know, let's just have more churches. Second, disciple our youth. The whole church needs to live their faith, including struggles with doubt and sin, in a way that our youth see and experience. So it's not just youth group leaders who should be discipling our youth. It's the whole church. And and the church should be helping parents. Third, 
use new media. Digital media today is like the Gutenberg press was for Luther. So where's the Luther of today? Why aren't we going nuts like the Protestants did when we watched the, remember when we watched the, uh, the um, Jesus the Game Changer? Yeah. about the Protestant church and there were all these leaflets that were being printed and people were translating Luther's theses from Latin into German and all this sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. We should be hammering YouTube um, and Instagram. yeah, Instagram with with stuff that, that actually conveys the, the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection and all that that means. And also mess up yeah, yeah, yeah. We should definitely be. Yeah. We should be totally all over meta. We should be in the virtual reality. <laughs> so, we should we should care for the poor. In a materialistic world, in a world under the sun, giving up material goods, the only thing that you have, if you think that they're the only thing, for others is a radical statement. So this is something that, that says that there's more than just the material world, even to people who don't believe that. And finally, we should be building intellectual leadership because the Gospel's always engaged in the marketplace of ideas. It's always competing there. And communicating it with clarity, consistency and winsomeness requires strong intellectual foundations. We can't uh, shortcut that, unfortunately. So that's the website that talks about that. They've got a whole PDF that's like 70 pages or something that you can go and read. So, as, as we here on the Gold Coast, in 2021, 3,000 years since Solomon. As we wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children. Let's, let's try to add to God's family as many as we can so that as many as possible people join us in that glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we, we do yearn for an end to the groaning of this world. Sometimes not as much as we should. We get a bit distracted because this part of the world is pretty nice. But still, we know that there's something broken and so we yearn to be with you. We long for reconciliation with you when everything will become meaningful and purposeful. And we can put behind us foolish behaviours, weakness and wickedness. We do want to bring as many as possible with us into your, into your rest. Protect us from falling into the trap of Solomon and thinking that our own wisdom can discern truth. Help us to always lean humbly on you. Come, Lord Jesus, come. In your name.